This is Game Theory, a podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making, hosted by me, Nick Andrews, and my brother, Chris. In this episode, we go hunting. Imagine you and your best friend go deer hunting. You each have a rifle, but to harvest a deer, you'll need to work together with just one shooter. But it's fine. You've agreed to split the harvest. With only three hours of daylight left, a hare runs across your sightline. And remember, you can't see your buddy. The prospects of getting a deer are still very, very good. But the hare is here right now. And while half a deer is many, many times as bountiful as a hare, the hare is here in front of you right now. If you go for that hare, you're screwing your buddy. But if your buddy goes for a hare, he's screwed you. So what do you do? It's called the stag hunt. And it's probably the most important aspect of game theory that can impact things like climate change, policy, and of course, sports. So in this episode, player three, grab your gun. We're going to get ourselves a deer. Recording in progress. And welcome to episode 34, I believe, of the Game Theory Podcast, your podcast about competition strategy and decision-making, Chris, and I think all of us would like to know how your trip to Louisville went. Yo, Player 3 had a great time in Louisville. I want to thank you for your support for helping the Green River High School speech and debate team make it to the national tournament. We were there for a week, and they competed their butts off. We had a great time. We saw some really cool sites in Louisville, checked out the Churchill Downs, of course, and went to the museum and all that kind of stuff. Saw some of the best competition this country has to offer. And uh, it's actually an international contest. There were folks from Taiwan and wow. New Zealand and Australia. Uh, really, really great time. The kids did their best. And we really appreciate everybody's generosity who was willing to chip in and help donate to get the kids there. They worked really hard during the year and they earned it. And I think they made the most of it. And uh, I love going back to Louisville, Nick, as we've talked about many times. Great food city, great entertainment city. I had myself a blast, learned a ton as like a guy who yeah, kind of coaches well, I see speech. And you debate. lost some of your hair in Louisville. I did. Left yes. Uh, yeah, just, uh, <laughs> just prior to departure. I uh, I went ahead and got a clean clean cut. I wanted to look my best when I was sitting around waiting to see if they would call on me to judge. Nothing rounds. funnier than nothing funnier than you got a haircut jokes for men. Just oh, well, I just got more than one cut. I was just gonna make that joke. Yeah. I was just gonna make that joke. I mean, there remember are, the first time dad dad dropped that one on us when we were like three or four? Yeah. I thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Correct. That one was one of the one of the funniest things in the world. The other funniest thing in the world is when I saw Meg on Family Guy freak out, and then at the end of her freak out, Stewie said, she needs to get laid big time. And when I was nine, that was something. I'll never forget that. I don't know that I've ever laughed that hard, but I was nine. I was like, Uh, that family guy humor it's it's a special brand reserved only for nine-year-olds and and tweens and people who like jaeger correct (laughs) um so oh we're gonna be talking about the stack on today which is a pillar of game theory and something that some french guy came up with um you can watch the episode on youtube you can watch the episode on spotify if you are so inclined of course like rate review subscribe five-star reviews get read on the air four stars reviews get acknowledged 
three star reviews are fine. Uh, I understand that's very judgmental. Like you're not mad, you're just disappointed. That's how I take a three star review. Not mad, just disappointed. We do have some cool, exciting stuff coming up. We're gonna bring on some guests, and we're gonna do a collaboration episode. Depending on when you're listening to this, it may or may or may not already be in your feed. And Chris, we keep talking about it. We're going to Philly for chess, and I think. We are going to figure out where we're going to be if you want to run into us. That'll be available on the next episode and in the show notes for this one. So you can check out what time you're listening to this if you're in the Philly area to come hang out with us. <sighs> Did I miss anything? I don't think I missed anything. Those are the updates on what's happening in our lives right now. I think, we're I think that's that's pretty much the sum total of everything that we have going on uh, in, our, in our lives. Okay, so a stag hunt... Is what's is it a stag party, the British version of a bachelor party, right? And the stag hunt is a concept that the French philosopher Rousseau came up with. Did I get those correct? Yeah, I, I think both those things are true. I haven't spent enough time in the United Kingdom <laughs> to know about the about the stag party. Although I have heard that term. I've heard like going stag yeah. to uh, like a dance or correct. something is going by yourself. Well, a stag is so just a male deer. It's a buck. We call it a buck here in the good old US of A. And what we found out, right, through game theory is that for the most part, Ayn Rand was correct, according to the philosophizers <laughs> and the math people, that people being selfish is typically the way to go. Defend yourself. Right, and then we did the whole Las Vegas Raiders and Los Angeles Chargers thing. We're like, hey, let's agree to tie, but it doesn't work, so you have to try to win. Be selfish. However, one of the key tenets, one of the weird games in the game theory suggests that that is not the case, and everybody wins if you sacrifice self-interest collectively. Yeah, so player three, we've talked about the prisoner's dilemma before. You know what the term Nash equilibrium means. You know it's the outcome that is the most rational result. Mm -hmm. If everybody on the field knows exactly what their optimum strategy is, they're going to result. They're, they're, the game is going to result in a non-cooperative equilibrium just about every time because that's the rational thing for every player to do, regardless of what the other player's strategy is. That's the key thing about the Nash equilibrium. When you're entering into a game and you want to get the most out of it or lose the least, depending on the circumstances. Uh, yeah. You want to have a strategy that's consistent with a, a minimum information environment. You have to go into this thing assuming you don't know anything about what the other players are doing. Because if you have a strategy that's contingent on what they do, you assume A and they go with B, then you're going to be kind of cut on your rear end there. So the Nash equilibrium is kind of an identified strategy that is the result of players making the most rational decision they have in a zero information environment. And for a long time, I thought that was like kind of it. It's like everything else is, is built on the Nash equilibrium. And it, largely that's true. Uh, but I want to give a shout out to, uh, to a listener, a buddy of mine named Mike. So shout outs to Mike. Uh, we were just having a conversation the other day and I mentioned game theory and I might've been talking about an upcoming episode or something. And he said, well, have you heard of the stag hunt problem? Mm. And he told me about this 19th or 18th century philosopher, Jean-Jacques Rousseau came up with this scenario in which a bunch of hunters are trying to go out and catch some game. And he, he had, you know, Rousseau was a, a philosopher of the social contract and inequality. And he, he contributed a huge amount to general philosophical thought. He's commonly name-checked as one of the all-time, all-time most important philosophers. And he lays out this scenario in classic kind of oldie-worldy speak in A Discourse on Inequality is the, is the title of his work. He says, if it was a matter of hunting a deer, 
everyone well realized that he must remain faithful to his post. So he's talking about a group of hunters that are waiting at their post. But if a hare happened to pass within reach of one of them, we cannot doubt that he would have gone off in pursuit of it without scruple. So he's, he's doing exactly what you said, Nick. He's laying out this scenario of a group of hunters who are going out to hunt a buck. And they get tired of waiting. It's a long time. Standing at the post with nothing happening is boring. Get distracted by a rabbit and they decide, you know what? I'm going to accept a lower payoff, even though a stag has more than all the rabbits out here combined in terms of meat and trophy. I'm going to go ahead and leave my post, risking that a stag will pass me by and our party won't get one, but I'm going to go ahead and get a rabbit. Right. So the decision is, do you sustain discipline and wait for the stag to come by in cooperation with everybody else? Or do you do your own thing, chase down a measly little rabbit, and wake up hungry the next day? So this is interesting to me because the the fact that like what's on the line is eating, right? That's pretty tough. That's that's high level stuff. Like, hey, are we gonna? Like, is the hunt gonna be successful? The, the stakes are very clearly high. So the idea would be that you want to avoid sunk cost. You want to avoid coming away with nothing. So as the sun starts to go down, you're like, I don't know, it's 3 p.m. I need to eat at some point in the next 72 hours. Rabbit is not nothing. We'll try again another day. However, if you were to get a stag, you would be sustained for quite some time. You can't get a stag by yourself. So getting a rabbit, getting a rabbit is essentially losing. However, in your brain, you're rationalizing it as it's not losing, but it sort of is. If you think about it as a binary thing, right? You either get a deer or you don't. Then a rabbit and not getting a deer are the same thing. And because it doesn't feel that way, then it, it, it makes it seem like you should get the rabbit. But that's not cooperating at all. Well, so actually the, the, the presence of the rabbit and, the, and the, the quantitative difference in meat, or I guess the, the, the weighted value difference in the stag versus the rabbit, that's the thing that makes this scenario different and I think more interesting than the prisoner's dilemma. Because So if you remember the prisoner's dilemma is where these two individual prisoners who don't know what the other is going to do can either rat out on their buddy and get a reduced sentence, or they can stick with their story and hope the other guy also sticks with his story and they get off scot-free. Right. The rational thing to do, as we discussed in that episode, and is is well-established in game theory, the rational thing to do is always to rat on your buddy. Do not cooperate, because if you don't cooperate, the expectation value is actually lower because there's a chance your buddy could rat you out and all of a sudden, you're stuck paying the price, and he gets a lesser sentence. And the the loss that you would sustain is greater by refusing to cooperate than you can expect to receive if you cross your fingers and hope for the best and try to work with your partner. So the, the situation there is that if you draw out that little square that we've gone through, you can see it in the blogs, and, and you can check it out in the show it's notes. It's on your screen. We'll, we'll link that. Right, magically on your screen. If you check out that square... That one outlines the different outcomes for each of the different players if they choose to cooperate or not cooperate. And you'll see in the bottom right-hand corner where both players refuse to cooperate, that's where the Nash equilibrium lies. The stag hunt is different because there's more of a payoff for getting the stag than there is for just going to chase the rabbit. And the rabbit still is more than the zero you would get from hoping everybody cooperates with the stag and somebody ends up abandoning post. Yeah. So in effect, the, the key feature of this stag hunt scenario with its independent blind choices and the difference in value is that there are actually two 
Nash equilibria on this square. There's not just the one. Right. And so what that presents us with is a kind of a challenge. Which of the Nash equilibria do we want? And the, the way the mathematics works out is that there's actually an equilibrium in the cooperate, cooperate corner, as well as in the don't cooperate, don't cooperate corner. Right. Yes. It's a, and that's sort of what I'm, I guess I'm not saying it correctly when I say the, the sunk cost fallacy, because what it reminds me of, there's a good example in sports, and we'll get into examples here in a moment. In, in super speedways in NASCAR, aerodynamically, on the way that these tracks are set up, it's good for everyone to fall into one of two lines. Regardless of if you're sixth or if you're first, you're closer to first by being sixth. If everybody spread out the way they do with some of these shit show races, you'll never be first. Because is that like in uh, like in Talladega Nights? Correct. Talk about like slingshotting and drafting. Yes. And all that kind so of the draft of, of Talladega with these super speedways is one of the when you watch it for like 250 laps, they're all just chilling because they understand that if you break ranks, it, it hurts you. You're going for the rabbit. You're like you, you might go get it, but like the the unit has a better chance of succeeding. That and if you accept being seventh, where there's no money, or twelfth, or fifty fifth, or whatever is in there, it's still better than going on your own until it isn't. Right until the sun goes down, at which point then everybody breaks three. They're like that. I gotta get a rabbit. I gotta take third. The sun goes. The sun goes down. That sounds like a romantic thing. Is it, I've never watched Talladega. Is it like when the sun goes down? That means we don't have enough time left. No, the sun goes down was for the hunting metaphor. The, the Talladega. Oh. The sun has been down metaphorically on those people. <laughs> the sun went down at nine a.m. for those people. <laughs> My bad. Yeah, no. So when like when it's time to get a rabbit, it's time to get a rabbit. When there's like ten laps left, you're like, I gotta make a move so I can. You know, the difference between taking third and ninth is. $800,000 or whatever it is, then you have to make that decision. But it is true that as long as you're in agreement with your hunting buddy, you're Gucci. You could just be more Gucci if you were both agreeing to go for the stack and got the stack. Yeah. So, so you absolutely right. You'd be much more Gucci to cooperate <laughs> in that, in that scenario. So the, the problem that we're faced here it, it is with these two Nash equilibria, we're actually presented with two completely different sets of equally, well, not equally, of mutually good strategies. And both strategies are contingent kind of on what the other player does. But what we need to do then, now that we have two Nash equilibria instead of one, is figure out like what's the best strategy in kind of real world situations like some some kind of more uh, examples that can flush out what this difference in payoff gives us and using those examples i think it's it's possible to come up with a realistic strategy for how to approach this so that you land in one of the two equilibrium positions like you right. don't want to go for a, a a sucker's payoff here right so like one of this what's really interesting is because if you're listening closely and you understand that you sacrifice your ability to get the rabbit to ensure that the unit gets the stag, which is significantly better than the rabbit, then there's an obvious example. Everybody arrived at it at the same time, I'm going to guess, and that is climate change. Yep. But it only takes a couple of people to go for the rabbit for you to be unable to acquire the stag, at which point you're like, well, fuck it, I should just take a rabbit too, I guess, right? Yeah, well, so I, I, I want to I consider reframing this. So we're, we're talking about rabbits and stags. Yeah, And sure. for the, for the non-hunters out there, I think there's another way to kind of generalize this. And I want to give credit to uh, YouTuber Ashley Hodgson, uh, who has just shout spectacular videos. Yeah, shout out to Ashley. Uh, excellent channel. We'll link to that in the show notes. Absolutely. Uh, and we'll link to it in the description if you're watching on YouTube. Uh, phenomenal explanations, clear as day. And the way that Ashley reframes this is instead of, 
do we cooperate and go for the stag or do we all break off and go get our rabbits? She frames it as, do we operate as a team or do we operate as individuals? And she identifies mathematically that the two Nash equilibria are where everybody works as a team. That's one. And the other one is where everybody goes and does their own individual thing. And it's a really interesting breakdown. And she comes up with this kind of strategic approach to figure out, okay, which of these two things am I going to go for? Because I've identified two Nash equilibria, but that doesn't help me strategize how I'm going to go into this and, and maximize my own payoff. And Ashley suggests this method that's kind of, she calls it the minimax method. Hmm. And the, the, the meaning of that term is that there are some kind of worst case outcomes and the goal of the minimax is to try to maximize the minimum loss or like what are all the worst case scenarios from my different options and how can I get the most payout of those basement options? And if you compare the payoffs from team versus individual okay. in both scenarios, yeah. the, the mm-hmm. lower payoff actually comes in both cases from not cooperating from working as individuals. Yes. And so no matter what, you're going to get a lower payoff. So then the question becomes, what is truly the lowest payoff in both of these scenarios? So if I go for the individual route and my potential partner also goes for the individual route, then we're both going to get rabbits. Right. We're both going to get like a payoff of a unit of just like one thing. Uh, but if I as act as an individual and my potential adversary operates as a team, then I'm going to get an even worse payoff. So that's like the worst case scenario. But the most I can get out of that rationally is if my potential partner decides to be an individual as well. Yeah. So that's like the best case of all the worst case scenarios. So the best so case of all the worst case scenarios is that you go for the right. rabbit and your partner goes for the rabbit. Right. And so then you can conclude, all right, that's the Nash equilibrium point that we're going to go for. You know, mathematically, it works out <laughs> that the, the, the best of the worst case scenarios is, is as likely as the best of the best case scenarios, which would be everybody goes and gets the stag, everybody works as a team. Right. But if I'm trying to minimize my losses or maximize my worst case scenario, you know, basically raise the floor of where I could expect to end up at the end of this, stri- the, of this decision my strategy then should be to act as an individual because I'm effectively cutting my losses. It's kind of like what we talked about with the, with the co-location of businesses a few episodes ago where we got the ice cream stands on the beach. We're seeding minimum amount of ground and we're taking care of our baseline of needs by going out, getting our own rabbits. It sucks. We missed out on the stag, but we made the best of the worst case scenarios. And so we made a rational decision. Yeah. And like a good, so the stag hunt part of this is why you, writing and philosophy is so important in game theory, because I, I find the metaphor in the game to be incredibly important in that it, it's different than the traveler's dilemma with like where they get you bidding against each other. And it's different than the prisoner's dilemma in the prisoner's dilemma. Someone's going to fucking prison. Like they're going to charge you with something. It might be this, it might be that it depends who gets to talk or whatever in the stag hunt. The beauty of this is that you got to still get the deer. And if you both attempt to get the deer, and this is where we're going to start nitpicking so that we can get into some real world examples. If you attempt to get the deer, to me, the worst case scenario is both trying to get the deer 
and not getting it. So if it's just me and you, two-player game, and we go get the deer, fine. If it's three-player game and we don't need the third player, but it would be better if the third player was going to help us get the stag, but it could kind of screw us up, then the worst-case scenario becomes we waste our time going for the deer and get nothing. Yeah, and like, like that's one of the one of the key features of framing this as sort of a stag hunt. It yes. really draws into stark contrast that success is totally contingent on team participation. Right. The, the the way the reason that Rousseau framed it as like people manning their post and a rabbit coming by to to distract them, and I think he said he accuses people of having no scruples, which just, <laughs> you don't hear that often enough anymore. Yes, scruples. Yes, so the lack of scruples causes people to abandon their post. The ve- the very act of them doing that, like it's not like you can just paper over that and say, well, okay, well, somebody else at a different post is going to get the stag. It's like if one person doesn't participate in this, then we lose out on our hunt. We are not going to get the fruit of our labor, and all of this cost will have been for nothing so that old you know, you know Johnny Hotfoot can run off and get himself a brace of conies. Right, and that's where, but that's where it becomes dangerous. But, but the, uh, another brilliant part of this is that the deer is such a bigger payoff that the rabbit is not worth it. If it were a fox, metaphorically, perhaps like, yeah, I'd rather have a fox to myself than help you jackasses get a couple deer. That, that's, right. At that point, you're like, okay, it's not really a lost, sunk fallacy. It's like, this is one fox for me is one deer for both of us. At that point, like, this is, and I, this is why this is brilliant, because there's skill involved here. It's not something that the cops are doing to you. You have to make a choice. And the other fascinating part about this is we have to agree in the real world on what the deer is. And that's where shit gets tricky. Yeah, exactly. And and I think there there are some other formulations of this kind of different payoff, contingent on team success, game theory scenarios uh, that are presented as another way to frame this issue. It's the same concepts there, but the the reframing away from a payoff of a stag versus yeah. a deer, I think can highlight the importance of the, of the cooperative aspect uh, to give you, to get us started with some examples. Cause you already mentioned one really important real world example in climate change. Uh, there are a bunch of others, uh, but another major philosopher named David Hume, uh, who is a, a key part of the Scottish enlightenment, just a brilliant, brilliant thinker. One of the most influential philosophers of all time. Uh, he formulated some different ways of, of, of thinking about this and his examples include, uh, imagine you're on a rowboat with one other person, and you're in the middle of a lake. It's a really big lake. Say you're in the middle of Lake Superior. I don't know. And you run into the problem of the only way to get back to shore is by rowing the boat. But the only way to get the boat going in the right direction and with the energy that you have in your body is to have both of the people actively trying to row the boat back to shore. You right. both have to put in the work. So your choices are row with your buddy, row alone, or don't row, and your your buddy has the same kind of layout in this in this four square scenario. But the reason that this framing, I think, highlights the cooperative nature of it is that Hume sets the condition, okay, you're so far out in the middle of this lake that you couldn't physically get yourself to shore if your partner doesn't cooperate with you. In other words, a one-man boat with two people on it is going to fail. And that status quo, the refusal to participate in the action that's going to save both of you, results in a status quo that is not tenable. You cannot continue to live your life safely and securely on this boat. Uh, he, he offers another similar example to that would have been pretty resonant with the agrarian society. So he, he lived in Edinburgh, and as I said, was part of the Scottish Enlightenment. Great he pronunciation, said, you nerd. I've been watching a lot of British quiz shows oh, recently. I bet, yeah. <laughs> so Hume formulates another uh, another 
exact scenario like this one as trying to drain a meadow. Yeah. So you're trying to clear a field, sure. get the trees out, prepare to air the land. You got to drain the meadow. If two people who live on that land cooperate and they can drain the meadow, then they'll be able to use it for whatever they want. But one person doing that is one drain isn't going to be enough to get all the water out. And one yeah. person putting in that labor isn't going to succeed. So what you end up with, if you just rely on one of the two people to do all the work is a useless wet meadow and all that effort is wasted. Nobody comes out any the better. And that again is a status quo that Hume would argue. And I would agree is not tenable. So the only rational thing to do in that case is to cooperate. So you're, you're square, nice, easy, strategic thing. Like, Oh yeah, there are two Nash equilibria rationally. If I'm trying to cut my losses, then I should try to act as an individual and not cooperate, but not so depending on what the status quo is and what the circumstances are, if you don't participate, then you're sealing your own doom. And so you can either seal your doom and everybody else is with you, or you can put on your big boy <clears throat> pants and participate in society, which is what Rousseau and Hume were getting at. They, they're saying, they, they've identified, look, there's another way to frame this cooperate or don't cooperate, this being a part of society. And by engaging in this contract, by, we, by being willing to participate as a member of society, we've reframed what it means to be rational. It's no longer just a, a raw calculation. Yeah. You arrive at the better of the two Nash equilibria and you change the status quo in a way that is favorable to both you and everybody. And that would have been impossible if you didn't all work together. Yes. And it, you start, okay. So if you, if you frame it as a live or die situation, then it kind of, it, 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 that's a different sort of thing. That's the assurance game, which is different than the stack hunt because there is a non-zero reward for being an individual, which is different than anything that we've discussed because you still save your own ass a little bit. And if everybody, it's, it would be difficult for everybody playing to, because if you don't drain the meadow, then the meadow is useless and you lose out on the meadow, right? But if you get the rabbit, then you got the rabbit. So it's yeah, non-zero. So, so yeah, that, so that, that, that's a good point. I mean, if you're able to kind of plug the holes as they appear, so to speak, mm -hmm. and you do that for long enough, then you can kind of take care of your own. Right. But the bigger problems that require bigger solutions or the bigger opportunities that present you with better outcomes, those are going to go by the wayside. And I think that's especially important in like American civic life. Like, I, as I said, these are philosophers of the, of the Scottish Enlightenment uh, and they were philosophers of the social contract. And so they were trying to understand the way that society should best be run and the way that people can best participate in that society. And I think they concluded rationally that the best thing to do is to is to cooperate, whether you satisfy your own needs for a sustained period of time or whether you end up in a status quo that's just not survivable for anybody. Yes. And so I, 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 there are two examples that come to mind. Um, the first example are taxes from democratically elected governments. Now, the difference is that you can't change your mind the next day. We all agreed. And we are all consistently daily agreeing to be in a society in Western culture where we elect leaders who make decisions. And most of those decisions are with how to spend our fucking money. That's this, right? Either you're all individuals with your own Wild West fiefdoms. The Wild West is the end. That's getting the rabbit. You're out there on your own and no one's like, there's a sheriff, but like it's your buddy and like you don't trust him. Like that's getting the rabbit. The deer is living in a city where you pay taxes and the government's like, we'll get it over here. We all get a deer. The problem is that as you add more variables into this, maybe they're not, maybe you didn't want that kind of deer. Maybe you'd rather have this kind of deer. But taxes and democratically elected governments 
are Stack Hunt. Everybody sort of buying into slash grandfathered into going for the deer. The other example, I comes from living in Philly, comes from watching The Wire, is a very simple phrase, Chris, and that is snitches get stitches. Now, that's uh, funny, but it's not, snitches don't get stitches. Anybody that lived in Philly or Baltimore or D.C. or New York or L.A., snitches get got. They get murdered. Um, so let's just say you live in Baltimore or Philly or D.C., like you and I have, and there is a gang in your neighborhood that sells specifically heroin and methamphetamine to whoever wants to buy it, and there's drug wars and gang wars and whatnot, the stag hunt is this. Either A, everybody agrees and snitches on everybody all the time. B, some people snitch and some people don't. Or C, nobody snitches, at which point the gang is in charge and the police are not. If you snitch and no one else does, you're dead. You got to get out of there. Like They will come for you or your family or worse. If you shut up, the gang's in charge they leave me alone. I leave them alone. Like it's not, I'm the, not directly impacting me. And this could all happen without the gang ever interacting with you at all. You just know how it is. Like you, you get your rabbit, they get their rabbit. This everybody leaves everybody alone. Or you get into a situation where like, okay, we're sick of this. So there's an interesting real life example about a year and a half prior to the martyrdom and murder of George Floyd, Camden defunded its police because it was overrun, there was no money, there was no officers to do this. And what they found was after about nine months of really working with the community, people started snitching. Now, crime didn't go down, but high-level convictions went way up because the people understood that if we start snitching and the cops do a good job and they hide our names, then we can choose the deer. We can hide our names. We can do this collectively. But the overlying thing was, do you trust the police? Do you trust the gang? Like, I trust myself. I'm going to shut up. In Camden, at least I last time I checked in in 2021, there were more convictions because people started going for the deer. Wow. So you're saying this has already kind of experimentally played itself out in a real U.S. city. And by the way, Camden is like, it's, I'm not going to say Camden is representative of everything, but Camden is a good place if you're trying out some experimental, potentially high payoff law enforcement reforms or criminal justice reforms. Canada's a good city to yeah. do it. I mean, it's annually up there with some of the most violent Flint, and dangerous cities Compton, in America. It's, yeah. Yeah. yeah so um, I want to clarify that the reason they defunded the police had, was because the police were out of money. So, so, can, so in this sense, it's, it's truly like the police are without funds. It's not a creative way to say we're reallocating money elsewhere. It's that the police department does not have money to continue. Camden County Sheriff Department, which is sees overseas Cherry Hill, Haddonfield, Haddon Township, and a bunch of other South Jersey things essentially bailed them out. And now Camden PD does not exist. It's an arm that was absorbed as because it's, you know, metaphorical stock price went to zero. Um, about, on. Yeah, about 60% of... The officers were retained as sheriff department employees, and the other forty percent were like, "We don't. You're out of fucking money. Nobody goes to jail. This is a mess." And so, like, it, it wasn't defunded. It wasn't like we're going to take control of our city. It was like, "This has been a mess. We're wasting money. You guys suck at this. The way it's happening, you're dead. We're moving the people that are not dying to this the, this law enforcement arm, and they're going to deal with it." And the the sheriff, the the vibe from the sheriff was like, "The way you doing it wasn't working." You will not have weapons. Like for the first couple of months, we're going to have barbecues and cookouts. And like, we're just going to hang out with the public because they're going to do their drugs. They're going to sell their drugs. Like you lost essentially. But then they found out that people started to snitch 
And that was a that was a consequence that they didn't foresee. They were just trying to get violent drug crime done and like essentially establish a safe zone, you know, wink wink kind of thing. And what they found was people started trusting them and they started ratting, and people started going to prison. Wow. And, and you know, that that really works out in, in accordance with the way theory would have explained it playing out. So our our friends at Cornell, shout outs to the Cornell blog the again. Best. This is on for the network's course. Uh, this particular entry that I'm about to to talk about and quote from is from Karen Joe. It just awesome, awesome alignment between what the theory of this stag hunt says and what has happened in Camden. So Joe writes, it seems the moral of the story, the story being the stag hunt problem and this this rational choice toward individualism, it seems the moral of the story is we're selfish human beings with little patience or trust in others, even if that cooperation meant mm. mutual benefit. But the moral is not quite so bleak. The dynamics change once the players learn whom to interact with. And Nick, that's what you said about when the people who would have been in and among gang activity, drug trade activity, learned after a while, okay, I'm actually able to trust the police force because they're doing, they're, they're responding in a way that's different than just arresting me or cracking down before they get a chance to take down their own right. metaphorical stag. Uh, Joe continues, the dynamics changes once the players learn whom to interact with, when there is a strong leader present, players are likely to hunt the animal the leader chooses. So charisma unifies people supposedly because people aim to be as successful as the leader. Uh, in addition to leadership, the, formula, the formation of a small but successful group is also likely to influence group dynamics. A click, so yeah. in the Camden case, yeah. right, right. So you start to see almost a community of of snitches. I wish we had a better term. Well, I mean, the witnesses is the correct I, I don't term. Know. Witnesses, yes. So a community right. of witnesses who are cooperative with the Camden County Sheriff Department, the artist formerly <laughs> yes, known as Camden correct. PD. And like it, it's so what the, from what I understood in the last time there's any deep reporting because I've heard rumors and shit because I used to drink with with um, journalists and things in Philly. The last confirmed publicly available report. Yeah, you like that? The last confirmed publicly available recording was that people were kind of coming up to the cops once this happened and they were like, hey, I got wow. some stuff like what about this? And then. It was all shut down. Before that, it was like, I don't know who to trust more, the police or the, the gangs. And so instead of that, I'll trust myself, and I ain't talking to nobody. And that's, that's the rabbit. Wow. Uh, this, is, this is really interesting. So, so I'm, 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 reading, uh, I'm reading this book, Bowling Alone, by Robert Putnam. It's one of the most influential social science publications in the last, I don't know, 50, 60 years. He published it in 2000, and then there was like a 20-year anniversary edition mm -hmm. just a couple of years ago. And what Putnam did was look at all these stores of social capital in the United States for the past, for, the, for really a review of the 20th century. And the, the basic trend is that at the beginning of the century, in the 10s and 20s, social capital was low. Americans weren't really connected. Trust was low. Institutions sucked. Uh, and then they just kind of started to get better. Social capital started to increase. The Depression happened. There was a little dip. The war brought everybody together. And then we rise to this peak at the middle of the century. And then, for whatever reason, he identifies 1964 as this peak year of American social capital. And after that point, for up to a decade, social capital and social relationships, interconnectedness in general, leveled off or declined, in some cases precipitously, depending on the format. And he's, he's looking at all kinds of stuff, like basic institutional trust, participation in political groups, membership in informal organizations or formal clubs, bowling leagues, all kinds of right. stuff. That's why he calls it bowling alone. And he finds by any measure, virtually any measure, Americans are less connected than ever. And one of the things that he suggests is that 
replenishing America's store of social capital in large part could be done by improving trust, not just in institutions, what that's important, but trust in each other in communities. And he finds that Americans now are less trusting than they were right. 50 years ago. And it's, if you, if you look at the Camden case, like you're describing, as you see like-minded stag hunters start to come out of the woodworks, they're better able to hunt stags. They're better able to identify with other like-minded folks who want better payoff, who want to change the status quo, who want to arrive at the optimum Nash equilibrium, not the most rational, quote-unquote, with the individualism aspect. And so it seems like Putnam's suggestion that restoring trust is going to have a payoff for social capital. Well, that's playing itself yeah. out in the Camden case too. So the game theory, the sociology, the criminology, all of it is pointing in the right direction. And that's based on trust. And that's based on cooperation, participation as a, as a collective unit, all going for the big hunt rather than just plugging in holes or in some cases trying to survive in an untenable Yeah, so it's really quo. interesting. I mean, this could be really fascinating. It's why, um, what's his name? I always forget his name. David Simon, I think, the guy that invented what's why he won the MacArthur Genius Grant and why I'm sure The Wire will be eventually Nobel Prize winning literature because he, what he, really, he was mind-blowing what he's accomplished. And what, what, what you realize is that if this happens, everybody has to allow it to happen for years because if it goes back to the way it was, like nothing has happened, just some people are in prison. The other thing that's really interesting is that by having this cooperation, the community gets their stag, which is like the gangsters out of there, and the uh, authorities get their stag, which is if they're on board with the elected officials, their stag is higher level convictions, not busting up the guys that are slinging dope, the dudes that are like running the shit. That's who the DA was. It's like when Bond, at the beginning of uh, Casino Royale, when Bond takes out that one guy. Just one less bomb maker in the world I thought would be a good thing. She goes, exactly, yeah, one exactly. bomb maker. That's, ex that's a great, that is a great way to, that's exactly right. So you, get, you got a guy, but if you can convince the police, like, hey, like, we would like the gangsters, like the ones making decisions. And like, the way to do that is to get people to talk and to trust you enough to show up in court and do all of that kind of thing. For the people, like, this is, this is the way Camden used to be in the 70s when the factories were open. This is great. Win-win. However, in this problem, there's one problem. It's that the people that are using drugs, they don't care about a deer. Yeah, that's the, that's the is thing high. is whether whether you're in yeah whether you're in the game or in the gang, I guess, or in the police force or in the community at large, everybody can recognize higher level convictions. Well, that that's our stag. The problem is that none of this means anything. The only stag right. is the next hit for people who are really truly Correct. in the throes of addiction and who are really kind of the the oil that lubricates the engine of illicit trade illicit, illicit drug Correct. trade activity and that's that's obviously going to undermine stag hunting efforts i mean rousseau said you got to have people stand in their post or he said they're without scruples in some cases you know people are, are too far gone and need more help than they're getting and they're unable to help bring down the stag but there, you know, it, it, there, there are a lot of other cases where the stag is clearly identifiable and it's possible to, yeah. to take it down. And I think it plays out in more than just this really, really mm -hmm. fascinating Camden case. The natural world sure. has some examples of this no. as well. Did you know that? In some cases, it's almost literal <laughs> okay. stag hunting. Uh, and by literal, I mean if the stag was a fish. <laughs> so orcas and, uh, and large, larger... Uh, whales are known to they're in, they engage in this behavior called carousel feeding or bubble feeding and it's it's fascinating i just saw a video of it the other day 
what they do is these these pods of whales kind of get together and they find a school of fish and they start to encircle the fish just like a, like a washing whirlpool, machine right? spinning a spiral right, exactly like a whirlpool and it makes a really beautiful spiral and they're able to coordinate super well and what happens is the school of fish gets disoriented they get physically trapped by the bubbles they get hit back in with the dorsal and tail fins of the of these really huge predators and so rather than having to chase down little stragglers from the school of fish, the whale pod is able to surround them and without allowing them to escape, they can just eat the whole thing. The, the thing that makes this like a stag hunt is that that's contingent on participation of every whale in the pod, but they seem to know that. I mean, they're successful at it all the time. It's like a standard way of hunting. The fish can't escape because they're surrounded quite literally on all sides. And it, so the natural world... It, the social animals tend to understand this principle really well. Even if they're not making rational choices, they're just going on instinct. Their instinct tells them, all right, there's a higher payoff here and I'm going to do this behavior. They're probably not thinking consciously because they don't have like, you know, complex free from. <laughs> yeah. But like, it, like but that kind of makes them, gives them an advantage because then they can't talk themselves out of it. Like they need, they want to live. Right. Exactly. They don't, yes, they don't have time to think about, Oh, what's my individual. What's my, what's my mini max outcome for this okay i'm going to try to just yeah I, and I, I think the ca- no, no, no. cats and dogs off the top of my head makes a lot of sense too because i think like and i've been an owner of a cat and a dog and i love them both um, but dogs very clearly are socialized to people and if they're bred correctly and not abused and raped and shit they are naturally receptive to human behavior which means that they provide a service and they believe that there will be protection and food brought back to them that's how it goes cats are not that way Sometimes they're that way with one another, but it's a much more sophisticated situation. When you, there's a really great documentary about cats in, in the streets of Istanbul called Keti in, in, in Turkey, and it's like 99% of Rotten Tomatoes about like cats know each other, and there's a social thing, and they want this, and there's scandal and all that kind of stuff. But dogs don't. They understand that if I cooperate immediately, that I will receive this back. But that's not something that they're taught naturally. It's been bred into them over time. And it, like, I think I'm, I'm off the top of my head, there are many other examples. You see, I know that there are fish that ride on whales and they clean the whale stuff and the whale doesn't get mad. And like, there are other animals that do that too. Like meerkats exist with like giraffes and shit. Every, yeah, like the symbiotic correct. relationships between, between the animals. Yeah, it's, they, they, everybody gets a, a higher payoff by cooperating, by operating as a team rather than as an individual. And like their entire biological existence is contingent on that. And, and, and that's true at the very large and very small scales too. Like our gut bacteria, there's like something like 100 <laughs> yeah. gazillion organisms right. inside each human person. Like they wouldn't exist without us and we couldn't survive without them. So yeah, you see, you see that kind of thing in the natural world. And then it also is an important idea at like larger scales too. So we've talked about American society. We've talked about the Canyon example, playing this out empirically. Uh, There are a lot of scholars who approach the social contract at a multinational level as well. And they rightly point out that the international order is characterized by anarchy. It's just power countries trying to look out for number one in a cooperative, competitive, whatever, in a zero sum environment. And that, that's kind of a newer phenomenon ever since like Westphalia. And I say newer as like a relative yeah, thing yeah, like yeah. in human history. It, but the point is that the social contract where countries can agree to give up certain rights and privileges in exchange for certain other benefits like protection, participation in multilateral organizations, payoff in trade deals, that kind of stuff. That also 
is modeled, I think, as as a stag hunt. You know, I said just a second ago that international relations is a zero-sum game. I think there's reason to think that it doesn't yeah. really have to be. It doesn't have to be just powers cooperate or powers competing for shrinking slices of a pie. I think it can be that by cooperating, they're able to generate net goods. They're able to generate wealth. You know, there, there are specific issues, I think, that highlight that. So like nuclear nonproliferation, for example, uh, you know, preventing the acquisition of nuclear weapons by foreign countries. Well, one of the most high visibility attempts that has been tried in recent years and is currently in, in its death throes is the Joint Comprehensive Plan yeah. of Action. That was an agreement among the Power Five plus Germany and Iran that would stop Iran from building a darn nuclear weapon. And ever since the United States unilaterally withdrew from that agreement, there were still, there were still six party states, but the United States was so important. You know, their absence there basically amounted to everyone else agreeing that the stag yeah. was going to get away. And we all have to just hunt our own rabbits. And in Iran's case, that rabbit is a nuclear it's, weapon. It's good that they don't hate anybody, though, enough to use it. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's not like they're out there saying, like, death to whole countries Entire groups of or people. whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's not... It, I'm, I'm just... Thank yeah, God they're that not would be bad, if, especially if, like, the, the genetically people have been there for centuries and they don't really care about anything anymore. That would be, that'd be terrible. <sighs> Truly. And speaking of bigots, uh, terrorism yes. is another one. Cooperating with to not give safe harbor to to terrorists. I mean, I think there's something to be said for uh, if everybody agrees that people killing people is bad, then that's yeah. a good place to start. But if one person doesn't agree, then all of a sudden that gives a little. All it takes is one person to say, "I'm not hungry." Around. Like, not even I'm going to hunt a rabbit. Just like, eh, I don't care. It's all it takes. Yeah, exactly. Apathy is as bad as it, apathy is as bad if not worse yeah. than. Right, and, and, and you know it, that, that's the that, that's the famous saying: like, you know, "Evil prospers when good men do nothing." Yeah, like that that kind of non-participation. If you're in the rowboat, if you're in David Hume's rowboat, if you don't care whether you get back to shore, you're just as unhelpful and just as dangerous to everybody who wants to get back to the shore as somebody who says, "No, I'm not going to do it yeah. for whatever other reason." Lack of care is every bit as deadly in cases of, especially international relations, but you know, yeah, in the stack absolutely. in general. And then uh, you uh, you hit the biggest the biggest issue climate right change. on the head, I think, and that 100%. is climate change. And it's really yeah. fascinating because you see, it's a test of human will because none of us are going to eat the stag, like it's generations away. Right. Yep. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to send the stag for years and years of processing. But it's it's a continuous process too. And one of the challenges is that we don't. People say we don't understand the science as like an excuse to not really act and that's that's really lame like we understand the broad strokes of the science we understand that like warming to specific temperature amounts will result in catastrophic effects it is demonstrably resulting in catastrophic effects right now right we, now we understand that there are certain actions that are contributing to that and accelerating those trends which if curved would reduce or even reverse those trends in some cases we understand that all of this is going to be really costly and uncomfortable but what we don't agree on is that the payoff state, we can't identify the stag. We, yeah. we can't identify a world in which the climate is like, okay, guys, the climate's not changing anymore. We're good. Like, there is no, there is no stag. There is never going to be a moment when everybody gets to sink their teeth and say, like, all right, everybody, we did it. 
So we have to kind of create our own artificial stags. Like, oh, over yeah, we're carbon over neutral over by 2035. Yeah. Well, we've right. shut down coal mining plants in, in Germany. We've stopped producing nuclear energy because of And well, what's really disappointing, Chris, and I, I think I'm going to come up with this really great ribbon to put on this. Yeah, you like it? Here I comes mean, Blair 3. It's a high-pressure moment now that I've been cocky about it. <laughs> um, Here we so go. So what's happening Here with climate go. change is that the, there's a collective group of powerful individuals that agree. So what they've done is release a bunch of rabbits and they're hoping that the people by taking the rabbit will be helping them wrangle the stag, which is electric vehicles and shit like that. And if, if there's economic incentives, it's like, yay, look, rabbit, go get the rabbit. And then what they're saying is like, we're pushing you to the deer. Please help us get the deer. The problem is that people have to maintain that illusion in the game for a century, essentially. Oh yeah, no it, if not longer. I mean, it's got to be like part of part of sustainability is that you want to create a system where people are able to have their basic needs met, but not in a way that's going to compromise the well-being of people in an in indeterminate correct time in the future. You know, when 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 the year turns twenty one hundred, that's not going to that doesn't mean anything for people who are born after that. All it means is, oh, yeah, we lasted for a century. Our goals are a century long, blah, blah, blah. Those are nice milestones, but ultimately, existentially, they're meaningless. And you're right. It's kind of like a, like a trail of rabbits, of a veritable Hansel and Gretel. But the question is whether we're going into the uh, the witch's house yep. to get the stag or the witch's oven. Because of global warming. Global you want to know a really fun fact? Change. So before I decided cook. to go to journalism because it was shorter, I wanted to do geology. And if I could go back and do my education again, I would do geology. Huge nerd. Here's a fun fact. Nerd. The, an asteroid did not extinct the dinosaurs. The dinosaurs, that was the fatal blow. That was the haymaker. The dinosaurs were done. They were going extinct because of global warming. Is that right? So wow. what had happened was they had been burping and farting so much, we think, that it raped the ozone layer to the point that what's happening now happened to them. Same. It melted the permafrost, which released methane, and they couldn't fucking breathe. And those huge animals, and like we don't need oxygen like they wow. need oxygen. So I don't know that that's going to happen here. But they were around for 67 million years, and they couldn't escape climate change. And then right when they were like, you know, way down, population the single digits from what it was at its all-time high, boom, knocked out by this meteoroid, and nobody survived. See, see you know, these Jurassic Park movies are <laughs> full of crap. But if the dinosaurs are so great... They can't invent air conditioning Correct. over the course of millions of years. That's Get right. the hell out of here. Yeah. I don't well, want to hear that. Honestly, but bring back the sloths. I'm about the sloths. I want some giant sloths back up in here. They'll fix all this shit. I would 100%. Like, rate, review, subscribe. We'll be back with a collaboration episode next time, Chris. We've got preview fantasy football. It's going to be a busy summer. We're, we're on our shit now. We're bringing down that stag, baby.